and we will launch in. We're going to, not that I think Rabbi Jerry was lacking anything, but I want to go back over chapter 20. We've been through all the difficult stuff, you know, and as we get to this chapter, I mean, it's still bad, but um, I want to slow down a little bit and enjoy this. And so it's not so much I thought there was anything lacking in Rabbi Jerry's teaching, just that I want to teach on this too. So there you go. Uh, welcome to Ron and Rishiel and Rebecca, Don. Good to have you guys all watching. Let me pray and uh, we'll get started. Lord, our God and God of our fathers, we thank you that you are the same yesterday and today, yes and forever. We thank you that because of your goodness and because of your faithfulness, your chesed, your covenant faithfulness, we have confidence. And we thank you for rescuing each one of us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of your beloved son. Please help me to teach and help us all to learn this evening at your feet, as it were, in Yeshua's name. Amen? All right. I had to go and have pizza for lunch. So I'm all ready with everything. I got my water. I got my reading glasses. But I have a feeling in like 10 minutes I'm going to be done with this, and I'm going to have to ask probably Brian, <laughs> or maybe I'll pick on Joe to go get more water. All right. Uh, greetings to Yo and Lois in Northville. Good to have you guys all watching. Again, if you want, hit share, and we'll invite everybody to join us. Um, I, I, there's one more copy of the notes, but uh, maybe somebody will come in late. And those of you watching, you see that Rabbi Jerry has posted a link, so you can have my notes there. I don't have an introductory paragraph or comment to this. We're going to launch right in, but I just thought I'd share with you, if you haven't seen it yet, the title of tonight's study is Goodbye and Good Riddance. Or if you remember the old Saturday Night Live uh, thing about the airlines, the skit with the really rude airline staff, buh bye buh bye Thank you, buh bye But wait, buh bye <laughs> Anyway, um, goodbye and good riddance to the evil ones. All right, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Boy, there's a lot in these three verses. It's an angel that, that locks up Satan. It's not Yeshua. It's an angel. This is angel on angel. This is lions and 49ers, not lions and Roger Goodell, right? This is angel on angel. The lions, they always have to play two teams at the same time, the other team and the refs. 
I won't go on about that. Okay, let's talk about names and titles. Um, and he laid hold this angel. Some have suggested that it's Yeshua because Yeshua elsewhere says, um, I, you know, I've conquered death. I have the key to death and Hades, and right? But that's not what is happening here. This is before all that or after because this is in eternity happening. But he's, John sees Satan being laid hold of by an angel, um, thrown into the abyss, which is then shut and sealed over him, locked up for a thousand years. Now, just in these three verses, we have a thousand year period of time mentioned twice. Just in case there was any question, if is it really a thousand years? So we have the dragon, the serpent, that's Satan, Hasatan, the adversary or the enemy is what that means. Genesis 3.1, he is the serpent of old, and that's what he's called here. Um, <clears throat> so Satan, or Hasatan in Hebrew, Satanas in Greek means adversary. The devil, right? The serpent of old who is the devil and Satan. Interesting, two titles, two different meanings. Satan means adversary. Diabolos, or devil, means accuser. And the idea is Satan is the adversary. He's the one who entices to sin. And when you sin, he then accuses you. It's like the, the schoolyard punk who hits a kid or starts a fight. The other kid fights back and then goes running to the principal. He hit me. He hit me. Right? So Satan tempts you. If you succumb, he then points the finger at you. I've known people who operate that way. But devil means accuser. He is the accuser of the brethren. So he stands, as it were, as a prosecutor, pressing charges, naming, naming charges against you. And, you know, we could all say guilty is charged, except payment has been made. My sentence has been served by someone else. Now, we think of the abyss as Satan's domain. It will be his eventual residence, um, but dominion over the abyss belongs to God. Dominion over everything in the universe belongs to God. Uh, and we see this by the angel is the one who possesses the key. If Satan were lord over the abyss, he would have had the key. He, he never had it. Okay? So he's put in there, locked up. And it says, an angel coming down, and he laid hold of the dragon. Again, it isn't God the Father, nor is it the Messiah, the Son who binds Satan. It is an angel. It's important that we remember that Satan is not God's opposite equivalent. It's apples and oranges. Satan is a fallen angel. God is the creator of the angels. So the final importance of Satan is perhaps indicated, this is Leon Morris, 
in the fact that it is not the Father who deals with him, nor the Christ, but only an unnamed angel. Which isn't to say that we should get all flippant and start poking fun at Satan. I've unfortunately seen some evangelicals get very arrogant about all this. They're telling Satan what to do, and they're commanding Satan. It's like, um, no, that's not yours to do. Even when Michael, the archangel, was dealing with Satan, he didn't get cavalier and crass about it. Even Michael, the archangel, said, the Lord rebuke you. So I've seen people who just have no idea what it is they're dealing with. Um, that said, Satan should not be seen as the negative counterpart to who God is. Okay. A thousand years. We're going to see that phrase, a thousand years or the thousand years, six times in this one chapter. Why does it keep saying that? Is it possible that the Holy Spirit in, intended John to write it this way because he knew there were going to be liberals who would not take it at face value if he only said it once or twice? So six times in here, this is a thousand-year period of time, and yet there are still liberal theologians who say it's just a stylized number it just refers to a general period of time. And there are other people who say that we are in the millennium. <laughs> if the millennium is what's being described in Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, here in Revelation, um, in Zechariah 14, this cannot be the millennium. Because during the millennium, the Messiah rules the nations with a rod of iron. First of all, he's not here, not physically. Um, and secondly, if he's ruling, he doesn't have much power. Since evil proliferates for the time being. Nevertheless, there are people who actually believe we're in the millennium. Go figure. All right. Welcome to Jennifer. Welcome to Michael. Good to have you guys all watching. Peggy, um, good to have you guys all watching. Thank you for tuning in. All right, so a thousand years. So liberal scholars, as I said, have argued against this being understood literally, claiming it's a stylized number. And the number 1,000 can be used and occasionally does serve as a symbol of something great. Uh, but to suggest that this isn't a real literal period of time um, with actual events that occur within it uh, exceeds legitimate scholarly bounds. I'm sorry, just you do violence to the text of scripture. You do violence to just good sound hermeneutics when you relegate this to some allegorical idea. Um, it will be a thousand years. Does that mean it will be exactly 1,000 years to the day? The minute, the hour, 1,000? No. That would be an error of what's called over-specification. But I consider it to be an authentic millennium, 1,000 years, real time. Now, the angel who imprisoned Satan, notice, is not mentioned. 
Elsewhere we read about Michael dealing with Satan, but this particular angel isn't even named. The devil, the devil of course, would never willingly surrender himself uh, for imprisonment. Um, and I'm not suggesting that we think of this in terms of this angel has greater power than Satan. But that angel, the good angel, is acting on God's authority. And with God's authority, he imprisons Satan. So maybe it's that God speaks a word and the evil one is rendered powerless in that moment. Um, for all we know, it could be a 98-pound weakling of an angel that binds him and imprisons him. Because again, it's not by that angel's power, I don't think. I think it's simply by the authority of the word spoken by God. I was reminded of this refrain from a mighty fortress. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. All right. I want us to take a minute and read Revelation chapter 12. I want us to go back there for a minute. Revelation 12, 7 through 17. Just as a reminder of the, the nature of the conflict that's happening. I want to welcome uh, Patsy and Kina. Glad you guys are tuned in. Rev let's take, turn for just a moment to Revelation 12, 7 through 17. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Here's that expression again. The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then it goes on now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah have come. But I want to say, really, it's just 7 through 10 for our purposes right now. Um, you notice the similarity of expression between chapter 20 and here in chapter 12. The devil, right, the dragon, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. And notice it says, who deceives the whole world. Well, again, back to chapter 20. He's being imprisoned so that he can no longer deceive. That's his stock and trade. Uh, verse 3, chapter 20, verse 3, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So deception is, is Satan's stock and trade. And deception usually doesn't come at you with obviousness. Usually there's a little truth mixed in with a diabolical error. Pretty much every cult group will quote tidbits of the Bible, will say things about Jesus, and it seems legit on the surface. But there's an awful lot of theological dog poop you know, with the little bit of actual scripture. Um, so deception, right? Satan usually doesn't come full frontal attack. 
He usually tries something very subtle, an enticement, or something that seems on the surface to be good and right. Um, all right, back to my notes here. All right, I have a note here to discuss the fact that the millennial reign of Yeshua, that thousand years, is not to be confused with heaven, with eternity. During the thousand years, it's on this earth. It's not yet the new heavens and the new earth. It's that thousand years is on this earth. People are still going to be born with original sin. They'll need to be taught the gospel. They'll need to be taught the ways of the Lord. But it won't be so hard because Satan's locked up. He can't do his deceiving during that thousand years. That means sharing the gospel and teaching this next generation will not be the uphill battle that it's been all these generations. Think about it. Satan is locked up. It doesn't say all the demons are locked up. It says Satan is locked up. Demons don't like each other. There's no love there. It's not like, okay, I'm going to use the analogy again. Sam Laporta and uh, Amon Ross St. Brown and right, David Montgomery and all these guys on the lines, they really love each other. They work hard together, right? It's teamwork because you win when everybody does their job and pulls together. When somebody's struggling, they encourage each other. Do you think demons encourage each other? You think if one of them misses an assignment, like Derek Barnes missed that tackle in the game against Dallas, um, do you think the demons, if one of them misses an assignment, misses a tackle, as it were, you think the other demons are, oh, hang in there, brother, you're going to make it. You, you'll be all right. The demonic realm is dark and hateful, self-serving. There's no teamwork. So if Satan's locked up, how do you think things are going to be for all the demons? They're still going to be hateful. They still hate us. There's still going to be enough of them thinking, well, I better do what, what the small M master wants us to do. But they're leaderless. There's no direction. And they're not looking out for one another. So because there's so much hatred there and lack of cooperation, when Satan's locked up for a thousand years, the demons, they were around, I'm sure, but they're like, there's no coordination of effort. It's going to be very, very different. But we must not confuse the millennium with the eternal state. It won't be perfect. It'll just be amazingly better, but it won't be perfect. All right. I have three questions here. I'm not asking them rhetorically. I'd like to get some of your thoughts and ideas about this. Question number one, in what way has Satan deceived the nations? The nations. In what way has Satan deceived the nations? Anybody want to throw some ideas? Just what comes to your head? That... Okay, that the, the Jewish people are not important or they're the cause of all the trouble in the world and let's blame them. And okay, so that's one way Satan has deceived the nations. Um, but what's his ultimate goal? His ultimate goal is to keep people out of heaven because each human being that he keeps out of heaven, he hurts God or he thinks he's hurting God. 
So most of the deception, I would think, has to do with who Yeshua is, keeping people from Jesus. So some of his deception could involve false teaching, getting people to believe in a Jesus of somebody's fabrication rather than the evolution, that God really didn't create the earth, that uh, it all just sort of happened. It just happened. Um, but Oh, like Satan actually going in and possessing people and causing them to do things. I, I don't doubt that there's actual satanic activity in, in, in people like Hitler, um, etc. Okay, so he's been deceiving the nations. Um, and so what will be the effect of his being locked up for a thousand years if he can't deceive anymore? Now think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this in a, what some would consider a conspiratorial direction for just a minute. Without coordination of effort, things fall apart, right? Right now, isn't there a lot of deception going on in the mainstream media? in the entertainment field, um, in the uh, university system, in the public school system. Um, they may not be consciously like, let's make sure, you know, send this memo to all the schools uh, and the media outlets and uh, entertainment tonight or whatever. It's not that there's memos going back and forth but be, there is a coordinated effort invisibly that's causing them all to be, without knowing it, working together in concert against God and against Messiah. Satan's locked up. We may actually have news that you can trust. We might actually have entertainment that is worthwhile. Right? We might actually have um, schools that teach things like math and language and real history. Right? A lot, can, a lot will be different during that thousand years. Now here's a question. Why does Satan have to be released again? Can't, couldn't God just lock him up, say, that's it, or just skip the whole lockup, and throw him directly into the lake of fire, do not pass go, do not collect $100, just send him directly to the lake. Why do you think Satan has to be released again? Brian. Yeah, but you went on ahead. All right, yeah. Um, at the end of the millennium, he's released, right? It says, it says, until the thousand years were completed, after these things, he must be released for a short time. I'll tell you my take on this. I think it's a biblical uh, understanding. It's still the present earth. People are still continuing to be born with a sin nature. And 
it's easy when things are going relatively well, and things will be going really well for the most part during that thousand years. But people are still going to have a sin nature. And demons are still going to be doing a certain amount of messing around. And there's going to be a certain rebellious streak within human beings. And it's almost as though, as good as things are, we see that it will not have been the ultimate. That there's still sin, right? There's still sin to be dealt with. Um, so the sense I get is that Satan is released. He foments one last short-lived attempt to annihilate uh, Israel. And just like the Battle of Armageddon, now it's the Battle of Gog and Magog, like bookends on each side of the millennium. I think God releases him at the end for a short period of time so that all generations will know conclusively that uh, we, we were never okay, that we all needed Yeshua, and that, and that Satan would have to be destroyed. You know, there are those who might say, you know, I feel bad. Does he really have to, do we really have to throw the Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet into an eternal tormented burning lake of lava and sulfur? That seems so mean, God. It seems so mean. Right? You could almost you can almost predict that some people would think that God should even forgive Satan. Um, I think what's going to happen at the end of that thousand years, and it's going to be just as bad as Armageddon. It's going to be Armageddon too, as it were. Um, that all generations, as it were, will look on this and say, no, he must be destroyed. He must be in the lake of fire. There can be no forgiveness for him. That's part of why I think he needs to be released, so that it's seen that he cannot be redeemed. All right. Other thoughts? It's not like I'm... And let me, let me piggyback on this. Human beings will still rebel, even though Messiah will be on the throne. Human beings will still have a rebellious nature by birth and have to be taught the things of God. Um, and this last battle, the battle of Gog and Magog, is not just demons and Satan doing their thing. It's a host of people from the nations gathered again. So we will see, we will all see how broken a world this is. It's going to be so much better in Messiah's time, but then just as soon as Satan is released, it's like everybody's going to come out of everybody's, all that hatred that's been kind of kept on the down low now has full expression. An example of this was in the aftermath of the attack on Israel on October 7th. Um, I remember on Facebook I posted, I said, you know, the sympathy for the Jewish people is going to last about, what, 48 hours before all the criticism comes down and everybody says to Israel, take it easy, don't, don't retaliate. It wasn't even 48 hours. Um, 
And people were coming out of the woodwork at what I consider a grotesquely distasteful time to pile on, to say how bad Israel is, to hate on the Jews. I mean, it's one thing if things are like normally going about normally, but in the immediate aftermath of a, of a horrible, grisly, murderous attack on Israel, I don't know if it's what the ultimate number was, 1,200 or 1,400 people, elderly, adults, babies, just hacked to death, murdered, just, right? In the aftermath of that, we can't even have five minutes of world solidarity, but immediately, Harvard, Yale, others, others coming out and saying, it's the Jews' fault. It's the Jews' fault. They deserved it. They're occupiers. They brought this on themselves. I mean, almost immediately. And then all, all these Jew haters just started coming out of the woodwork on Facebook and on X and all these platforms, basically just, and why? Because they suddenly felt that they could afford to do it because everybody who felt like they do was already doing it. The world is hating on Israel. Hey, why shouldn't I? Why should I keep quiet about what I felt all this time? That's what it's going to be. People still born with a sin nature. There's going to be hatred for the Jews, hatred for Israel. And I wouldn't be surprised if the hatred is intensified by the fact that you got a Jew ruling the world. Right now, there's people who think, oh, the Jews rule the world. No, 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 no. But a Jew will rule the world. His name is Jesus. And they're not going to like that. And why has he got to make his capital in Jerusalem? Why in Israel? Why can't he make it in, why can't his capital be in New York or, or um, you know, so Switzerland, Oslo, Norway? Just why can't he, right, why is it always about the Jews? There's going to be this underlying hatred that's just going to be there in the ensuing generations during this thousand years, and it's all going to come to the surface, and everybody's going to feel emboldened just as soon as Satan is released, marshals his demonic troops, says, okay, go, go, get, it, get this thing going. And it's going to happen very quickly. All right, verses four through six. I didn't expect to take that long on three verses. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Yeshua and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Messiah and will reign with him for a thousand years. 
really now, how many more times do, uh, does God need to say it's going to be a thousand years before we'll actually believe him that it's a thousand years? I have a question here. Um, oh, from Joanne, Randy's mom. Um, Rabbi Glenn, can you please answer a question? Why are the Jews considered the chosen people? Um, it's not so what we're considered. It's what God did. God chose the Jewish people, not because we're better, not because there are more of us, not because we were mostly, you know, most like we were not voted in the yearbook of the world most likely to succeed. God chose us. Um, and arguably, Joanne, he chose those who, by the world standards, would be least likely to succeed so that with that success and with that endurance across the generations, people go, how do they do it? Well, a Jewish person who really gets it would say, it's not because of us. We're not more ingenious than anyone else. God is with us. God made a covenant, right? And, and he doesn't break covenant. That's why we're still here. And that's and it's, but it's also precisely because God chose this unlikely group of people that we are so hated by Satan and will be hated by those who unwittingly are serving Satan's agenda. So a thousand years. So authority, yeah, Herm? Well, yeah, I mean, God chose the Jewish people through whom would come the Messiah. So the Jewish people are significant in terms, in those terms as well. It is through the Jewish people that the Messiah came, but he could have chosen anybody. The Messiah could have been born in Scotland. But God chose this unlikely people group. And he put us and he put us in a very strategic place. Look at a map sometime and see that Israel is a land bridge linking the supercontinent of Africa with the supercontinent of Asia and the supercontinent of Europe. And there's little Israel right in the midst. God chose a little unlikely people and put us in a most strategic place. So that this little people who were given the oracles of the one true and living God, anybody who's coming this way and going that way, or going, coming from that way and going this way, all the would-be kings and conquerors of the world have had contact with this peculiar little people. And it makes a difference. All right. So there's two resurrections, right? There's a resurrection. Um, on this side of the thousand years and a resurrection after the thousand years. We, you want to be in the first resurrection, right? That's the resurrection of the righteous. Because the resurrection, the second resurrection is the resurrection to eternal judgment. All right. So authority and rule is given to those who are martyred, martyred for their unyielding testimony that Yeshua is the Messiah. And it is by their willingness to pay that ultimate price in order to remain faithful that they show themselves worthy. They are fit to be part of that kingdom. They're fit also to rule and judge. Note that 
holding fast the testimony of Yeshua, I should have a close quote there, is equated with the refusal, it's equated with the refusal to worship or show loyalty to any other. Precisely because we are faithful to Yeshua, we're not taking that mark. We're not worshiping the beast. We're not serving anybody but him. And that will cost many their lives. Martyrdom will await many who refuse the mark of the beast. Decapitation will apparently be the preferred method, right? Um, seems that the, that's how they're going to have died. Um, it says that uh, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony. So decapitation will apparently be the preferred method. And maybe that will be because they will have figured out that when saints are in the process of being martyred in other ways, they can still speak. And others might be moved to faith as they witness such loyalty and courage. You know, in Acts chapter 7, we're not going to read it, but in Acts chapter 7, Saul, who later became Paul, Saul was there. He was approving of the execution of Stephen. Stephen was being put to death. And as he's being stoned to death, he's speaking these words of mercy and forgiveness and faith and just such courage. And you got to know that pricked a lot of people's hearts. And even though Saul was in favor of putting him to death, apparently, later on, Jesus says to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, right? It was nagging at him, the courage that that man showed. So maybe they figure that if we decapitate people, they can't talk like they could talk if we were just burning them alive. Yeah, awesome. There is records of uh, Christians being put to death, praising God in song and in word. And people were just so moved by that. Many more people. How can they have such courage and such poise? And even, even in the moments of before their death, they have such peace. How is that possible? And many people came to faith, I think, through that. So... Um, so many scholars believe that the goads Saul had been kicking against was a reference to his internal struggling with Yeshua after witnessing Stephen's martyrdom. Paul became a violent persecutor of the believers, likely on account of that internal struggle. Before he was ready to yield, uh, he was fighting it, and people who don't want to hear it sometimes become the angriest of all, right? but at least we can say he was motivated by ignorant religious zealotry. The beast and the false prophet, animated by Satan, will not have any scruples, religious or otherwise. Their insistence on conformity and worship, coupled with their bloodthirst, will result in many martyrdoms. And it says, and they came to life and reigned with Messiah for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection, which the text goes on to affirm. That is our goal. Once again, a specified period of time. It's a thousand years, corresponding to that period of time that Satan is locked up. 
Now, if this is, as some argue, just a metaphor, then why all the repetition, as I said? Why, all, why a thousand years mentioned six times? For me, it would be enough to simply be with Messiah Yeshua, but we are promised to reign with him um, if we hold fast his testimony. And so this passage supports the argument that resurrected saints will be able to walk the earth during the millennium. Now, it might seem a little weird to us that people who had died are, have come back to life and are walking around on the streets of Jerusalem. It may seem odd to us, but the millennial reign of Messiah will be filled with wonders and miracles, right? Much of nature will have reverted back to its original design. Isaiah 11 describes the, the realm of animals and man living in, in complete harmony and animals not being predatory anymore. So it's going to be a time filled with wonder and miracles. But there is to be a second resurrection. I have in my notes here, um, 2 Timothy 2, 10 through 13. But there's to be a second resurrection. And it says in, here in Revelation 20, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So that is a resurrection to me, judgment. And I hope with all my heart that none of us are in that group. For the group in the second resurrection are to be judged on their deeds. Would you want to be judged on your deeds? Would, would you want to be judged on how well you did? Like, especially knowing that he's holy and he doesn't grade on a curve. Would you want to be judged on the caliber of your deeds? Oh, Lord, help us, right? Um, in other words, these are those who have rejected God's offer of grace. Um, in the person of Messiah Yeshua. So to be judged on one's deeds is a terrifying thing in view of an infinitely holy God whose standard is perfection. All right, verses 7 through 10. Oh, look, here it is again. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. It's like bookends. You've got this thousand years of Messiah reigning on earth. Just beforehand, there's this cataclysmic war, which we call Armageddon. Then you have this thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is released for a short period of time. He foments a worldwide rebellion. And what do they do? They come and they want to attack Israel and Jerusalem again. Bookends. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan is released. He attempts once again to deceive the nations. It won't be so easy this time, but apparently there will still be 
perhaps millions of people willing to get on board with his hatred, um, and they're going to do it again. I do not believe, and there are good, very good scholars who would disagree with me. I could be wrong about this, but I do not believe that the Battle of Armageddon is the same as the Battle of Gog and Magog. I believe scripture presents them as two parallel conflicts occurring on either side of the millennium like bookends. The worldwide war of Gog and Magog will parallel the Battle of Armageddon in that the center of the conflict will be the same, Jerusalem. Here it's described as the beloved city. Many nations will be involved, just like at Armageddon. And the outcome will be the same, victory for God and his forces and defeat for Satan and his forces. Once again, however, we've got to acknowledge and lament the fact that multitudes will follow in that rebellion and of necessity will be destroyed. The text says that the number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and there's nothing in the wording to make us think that this is merely a demonic army. It's deceived the nations. These are armies from the nations. Now, I have it in your notes here, and again, folks, uh, Rabbi Jerry has posted uh, the notes there for you um, from Ezekiel 38 and 39. But let me just go on because we're almost, almost out of time. The death toll of the invading armies will be such that according to Ezekiel 39, the people will be burying the dead for seven months after the war is over. And there will be, there will be enough, apparently enough wooden weaponry or some kind of weaponry that can be burned that it will fuel fires for seven years. So you, there will be no need to cut down uh, firewood from trees. What's also interesting is that the Antichrist and the false prophet will have been waiting in the lake of fire. It seems that they will already have been there waiting for Satan to be thrown in with them. That's a lot of collective hatred. There in the lake of fire, they'll tread lava <laughs> forever. And good riddance. When you think about all the misery the pain, the suffering, the dying, the heartache, the deception, broken promises, broken hearts, the murders, the thefts, the deception, all that's been going on in the world, Satan has perpetrated. And how many countless people have suffered and died? How many tens of millions of people died because of false ideologies, false philosophies, all originated with Satan? There should be no sympathy. The Rolling Stones song, Sympathy for the Devil, don't you believe it? There should be no sympathy for the one who has fomented the death of hundreds of millions of people in some of the most painful, agonizing ways across all of history. There is no mercy for him. And I think the whole thing about releasing him for a short time at the end of that thousand years is so that no more questions. It's absolute. He needs to be in the lake of fire forever. All right, verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne and him 
who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and scrolls were opened, and another scroll was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the scrolls according to their deeds. So there's these books, but then there's the book of life. And if you're faithful to Yeshua, that's where your name is. So these scrolls haven't, don't apply to you. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the scrolls according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. That's interesting. Somebody is buried at sea. Their body decomposes very quickly. Fish will nibble at, at it. The, 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 just the concentration of saline will, I don't know, I, I don't know how long it takes for a body to be eaten and decomposed and reduced to bone. In, in the sea, but it, it's got to be fairly quickly. But think about this. There are others who have been cremated and their ashes scattered on the sea. How are they resurrected when their bodies have been eaten away by fish or reduced to ashes and scattered on the waters? This is the power of God to completely reorganize every molecule, even if in the, in the currents of the ocean, some of this person's body is now a thousand miles away. God can reassemble every atom, every molecule, and will, and the sea will give up its dead. The earth will give up its dead. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged. Notice it says death and Hades. Hades is not the same as hell. A lot of people make this mistake. Sheol, otherwise known, sometimes known as Hades, is simply the place of the dead. Now within Sheol, there were those prior to the resurrection of Yeshua who were waiting and they were in the bosom of Abraham in a place of comfort. And there were those who, like the rich man, were in a place of torment. It still wasn't hell, but it was sort of like the outskirts of hell. And those in the bosom in the comfort of Abraham were sort of on the outskirts of heaven, but a great chasm between them. Well, now this is the second resurrection all of the dead are raised who had not already been raised in the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous. And it says, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. That's a very scary thing for anybody who understands who God is. To be judged finally and eternally on the basis of your deeds. Oh boy, right? But that's, so this is the second resurrection, the resurrection of those who will be condemned. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, 
he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you're not in that, that book means you're in one of these other books and you're being judged. You're being judged um, on your deeds. And your deeds, I don't care how good a person you imagine yourself to be, your deeds will fall miserably short. So this is the finality and the severity of the judgment of God. I believe this second resurrection here and this judgment is what we frequently call the white throne judgment. We who love the Lord are not subject to that judgment. It's, it's a non sequitur for us. Messiah Yeshua took our sin and gave us his righteousness. The only judgment that will affect us is the judgment of what we've done in the body as part of Messiah's people. So there'll be a sense of reward, a sense of failure in some ways, but it has nothing to do with our eternal destination. It's just, you did great here, could have done better here. This person who we never heard of has all this reward, and we're like, I never even heard of this person. And here's this famous person, they just... They like barely got in. They got some boxer shorts on, you know, but kind of idea, right? But again, to be judged according to your deeds is to be judged guilty in the face of an infinitely holy God and to be condemned. Isaiah 64 came to mind. All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf like the wind, our sins sweep us away. And finally, I just wanted us to read uh, together uh, John 5, 22 through 27. It's in the notes here. Who is the judge seated on the throne? We would tend to think it's the Father. But look at John 5, 22 through 27. It's Yeshua speaking. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. It's a package deal. If you refuse Jesus... You get nothing. You don't get the Father. You don't get anything. You, you take the Son, you get the Father also. Refuse the Son, you get, to use the Yiddish expression, gornished, nothing. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. and Those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. You know, it's interesting as, 
as we've moved out of the deep freeze of the early days of January into now 30-ish and 35-ish degree weather, and it's no longer snow, but it's rain. The other day, it was still only about 19 or 20 degrees, but the sun was out. And in spite of the fact that it was 19 or 20 or 23 degrees, some of the snow was actually beginning to melt from that thing up in the sky, 92 and a half million miles away, a perfect fusion reactor, right? A perfect fusion reactor. Well, it's not perfect, it's slowly dying, but the point is it's a fusion reactor. The moon does not have its own innate light. It only reflects the light from the sun. There's a t-shirt, right? Be like the moon, reflect the sun, S-O-N. The moon does not have light in itself. The sun has light in itself. And this is just a tiny little comparison. It's a, not a great comparison, but God has life in himself. He did not have a beginning. He has no end. No one gave life to him. He has simply always been. It's mind-blowing, but that's who he is. He has life in himself, and it says that he gave the Son, Messiah, to have life in himself. That's authority. All right, so anyway, this, is, uh, this chapter is the last of the bad stuff of the Revelation. From here on out through the end, through chapter 22, it's all glory and joy inexpressible and uh, eternal. So it all gets better. But I really wanted to go back through this. I wanted to just give some of my thoughts on this. Hopefully it was complementary to what Rabbi Jerry uh, was teaching and just gives, hopefully just we have a good full idea of what's to come. So what's the takeaway uh, for us? Because I don't want this just to be an exercise in, oh, look, we, we interpreted Revelation chapter 20. The upshot for us is we want to be in that first resurrection. Right? Because those who are part of the first resurrection, that, that judgment at the white throne, right, doesn't apply to us. We have his righteousness. If somebody says to you, well, why do you think you deserve to go to heaven? What makes you think you're better than me? We can very honestly say, I'm not better than you. And I don't deserve to go to heaven. None of us do. I'm going to heaven because the perfectly righteous one, whose name is Jesus, the Messiah, paid a debt for sin that I could never pay. And you can't the most righteous person on earth couldn't pay. So no, I don't deserve to go to heaven, and no, I don't think I'm better than you. But likewise, you need to be careful not to think that you're better, that you don't need Jesus, because you're good. That's the danger. And so the takeaway for us is when it comes to sharing our faith, we have a confidence, but it's not rooted in who we are how good we are, or how well we do. Um, and yet we have this confidence. Some will mistake it for arrogance, but we can easily 
disabuse people of that simply by letting them know, I'm not better than you. I mean, by human standards, I might very well be worse than you. Um, and none of us deserve it. So grace is the real crux of all of this. Messiah's righteousness credited to us. Our sinfulness taken by him, and then he was judged and put to death and rose again from the dead. So I was talking to somebody else today. Who was I talking to? I think I was... Um, oh, I was talking to a pastor, and he was saying that he's just begun teaching through Revelation. And he said, you've taught your, your teaching through that. I said, yeah. He goes, how has it been? I said, when I first announced that I was going to be teaching through Revelation, I was feeling quite overwhelmed and uh, nervous. It's, it's so important, and it's so easy to get this wrong. He said, I felt the same way. Uh, but then I said to him, what I've been encouraging all of our people to do is at least like once a month, do a read through. Just read chapter 1 through chapter 22. Just like dedicate an hour, whatever, and just read the whole letter. Because that's how letters are supposed to be read from beginning to end. And this other pastor and I were saying that so many people get frightened by Revelation because they're reading it the wrong way. They're not reading it beginning to end. They're like, skip everything, go right to chapter 13, read about the Antichrist and all the mayhem and all the murder and martyrdom. It's like, I'd be scared if that's how I was doing it. But who, whoever gets a letter in the mail and skips to page 3 to start reading it? We're not meant to read the Revelation in little bits and pieces. We're meant to go through it. And so that's why we've still got a couple weeks ahead, God willing, in this book. If you haven't done it in a while, and I haven't done it in a while, take some time, either this week or over the weekend, and dedicate an hour to read God's letter to you through John. All right? Lord God, thank you for our time together this evening. Thank you for your word. Thank you for announcing well in advance the things that are to come. And we know it isn't going to be pretty, but we know where our eternity will be. And we know what our future is with you. And so come what may, Lord God, we are yours. And we will, with your help, remain faithful to the very, very end. We thank you for the promise of greater things to come, things about which we'll be reading in the next few weeks. Thank you for everybody who's here. Thank you for everybody who's watching. For those who drove to be here, please grant them safe travels home. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, thanks, you guys, and we'll see you soon.